Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of When Movies Were Good, recorded here in Melbourne, Australia, still in lockdown conditions. I'm Rachel, and I'm joined by the Jonathan Harris of this podcast, who's recording at his home, hence the telephone recorded conversation between us today. Matt, Matt, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I mean, with similes like that, I'm going to get a big head very soon, and it's hard to find a hat that fits me as it is. Oh, definitely. No, anybody that, you know, you do have sort of the enunciation and all that of Jonathan Harris. Um, I'm very excited. Yeah, he spoke with that very sort of Shakespearean sort of slant to his, uh, to, uh, to his, um, speech and discussion techniques, et cetera. So that I, I, I I think that's a good thing to have. So we. Well, you were offloaded once in the comments page. uh, Someone said they'd uh, listen to you read the phone book. Oh, great. Actually, and as I was joking around with you earlier today before we started recording that I am actually going to lend my voice to an interesting project, which I can't really talk too much about, but um, I'll be interested to see to see how that goes. And I actually do, I think that... So will the, I. Yeah. <laughs> I think so will several of my friends too, given the nature of the material, but that wasn't why anyone called. So... Welcome to When Movies Were Good. We are doing a Marlena Dietrich double. We sort of got enmeshed into the Boris Karloff Frankenstein world over the last month or so. So now we're catching up again with one of the beautiful women, one of the most famous classic film stars of all time, the beautiful, the irrepressible Marlena Dietrich. So, Matt, you suggested Marlena Dietrich. Is there anything that you just want to say about her off the top of your head just to start with? or? Um, I suppose I'll just uh, say uh, right off, uh, these uh, two roles we've uh, looked at of hers aren't the uh, top hat and tuxedo ones. Uh, that might have to wait till another episode. We often uh, seem to pick films where we're actually uh, looking at, against the stereotypical image of the actor in question. Yeah, that's right. It's also what sort of films we can get our hands on as well, because sometimes we've got all these. That helps you know, too. Oh, we're gonna do, yeah, we're going to get do this, we're going to do that, and then we realise it's not on iTunes or it's not on Prime or it's not on YouTube or, or wherever. So you have to be able to watch the movies as well. But most of these famous classic movies are available. So we are doing a Marlene Dietrich double. We are doing the two films that we're doing for Marlene, Marlene's um, career. Uh, ones that a well-known films and a little bit against type, I guess, for her. So we're doing Destry Rides Again, which is a 1939 American Western film directed by George Marshall and starring, I mean, in one of her most fun roles, Marlena Dietrich and James Stewart. So a really um, sort of jam-packed sort of film. Then the other one that we're doing is a very famous film, of course, of the great Orson Welles, A Touch of Evil. It's a 1958 American film noir, uh, directed and written by the great Orson Welles, and he also stars in the film as well. Uh, so the screenplay for A Touch of Evil, in fact, both of these films, Death Rides Again and A Touch of Evil, were based on novels, somewhat close in some ways, and then very, very artistic license in, in other ways. I haven't read either of the novels. So, but it was the Whit Masterson novel Badge of Evil that A Touch of Evil was based off. And so we had actually Charlton Heston in an unusual, um, change of pace. He was very well known for playing Ben Hur and, uh, Moses and a lot of these great, uh, larger than life film roles. We have the wonderful Janet Lee in the film as well. And then Marlena Dietrich kind of plays a, 
sort of Anne guest starring sort of supporting, like when she comes on the screen, sort of steals the whole thing, sort of role in this film. And she looks exquisite in this film. I love the darker hair on her. So just well, by the time of this movie, she was really one of the iconic names and uh, only had to appear on 10 minutes to adjust, justify top billing. Yeah, I mean, she was stunning in this film and she wasn't a young woman at that stage either. She would have been into her, because let's have a look at, uh, let me just go back in. So she was born in 1901, so A Touch of Evil was 1958, so she was 57 when she made that film. And at, in let's face it, in the era of um, classic film actresses, that you didn't transition over into more of a character actress or you traded a bit more on that, then you didn't sort of have the longevity in, but having said that, because these actresses were so well known from their the classic movie era, they were still always in demand for TV. I mean, watch any sort of you know episodic TV shows of the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and you'll still see a lot of these classically well known actors and actresses doing episodic TV. Which is yes, awesome. Columbo's a godsend for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And you had things like The Love Boat and some of the super soaps of the 80s. You had people like Ava Gardner and Celeste Holm and, and of course, Jane Wyman and, you know, really famous, well-known people actually continuing to work. And that was the era of actors where they just continued to work. So we quickly just go through a little bit about, not that we could ever do it justice in the time frame that we've got, a little bit about uh, Marlena Dietrich. So she was born Maria Magdalena Dietrich. So Marlena was sort of a composite of her first and middle name. She was, as everyone will understand just from her name, her accent, she was born in Germany in 1901. She was an actress and a singer. She has a very unique, deep singing voice, and her career spanned from the 1910s. So she was performing since she was a young girl to the 1980s, actually. She was very prolific, and she really, you know, she had her film career. There was TV, but she was also a very well-known, well-traveled, and much-performed stage and cabaret actress, and that was uh, her bread and butter. So she was born in the Berlin area in, in 1901. She did perform on the stage, and she started off her film career in European silent films. They were very prolific with what they were doing in Europe at the time. She made a film in 1930 called The Blue Angel, and that brought her international claim. And then, she, of course, Matt, what do we know? They got that contract at Paramount, <laughs> moved over to Los Angeles. And, and the rest is history. And the rest is history. You've got to get that contract. Once you get that contract, I'm not saying it was all um, easy going or easy street after that because there were a lot of things locked into their contracts. Um, but once you got that, you had the stability. You were able to move, especially if you were an actor from the UK or Europe, you were able to to move, to live there and had that steady ongoing work, which um, is not something really afforded to actors now unless you're sort of running your own production company, I suppose. Now, she did star in a whole slew of Hollywood films. Now, this gentleman, um, Joseph von Stenberg, who directed Blue Angel, she started her, she started her Hollywood career working with him exclusively. So, um, Morocco. Now, Morocco, Matt, is that the one where she's wearing the top hat and tails? Is that, that was where she got the Academy Award nomination. I think that's the very famous sort of, um, figure that she's playing in the film where she wears the suit and the top hat and all that sort of stuff. I'm so not sure if she wore it um, more than once uh, because uh, I 
I, I'm trying to remember if she had the suited top hat on and the blower angle or the blow angle as well, because uh, when I was studying German, we watched a, a snippet of it to sort of study uh, Weimar Republic culture. Um, oh, okay. I, I can't yeah, remember pretty... if she was wearing a cabaret outfit or a suit and top hat. Uh, yeah, it's very um, yeah, it's very um, Liza Minnelli, Joel Grey cabaret that sort of thing. But that was one of the iconic things that she was known for that visage of wearing the top hat and the the suit, and that's a very cabaret style thing that a lot of female performers were doing back then too. So she made um, that film Morocco. Uh, she made Shanghai Express, Blonde Venus. Uh, and then the films that we're talking about was sort of just as she was really, she had established herself as a Hollywood sort of powerhouse, basically, and Destry Rides Again came in. So if you think about her in Destry Rides Again, she was already 38 by the time she was, so she got a bit of a late start, obviously, coming in from overseas. Well, by the time very, she, by the time of the yeah. sound era and when she was in America, she would have already been fairly mature. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And she she was in Alfred Hitchcock's Stage Fright in 1950s. She was in Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, and she was also in Stanley Kramer's Judgment at Nuremberg, which I, I would like to see. I haven't seen that film yet. And then, of course, uh, also the other film that we're going to briefly discuss here today, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. So she also was just, she spent most of the 50s to the 1970s touring the world as a cabaret performer. So good on it. I think that's fantastic. I really love when you have performers who are a jack of all trades. They love their films. They love their TV, but they're happy to jump on the stage and that, to me, that's an all-round performer. I don't understand actors who don't want to do stage work. That's the bre- for, for me, that's the bread and butter. I don't know why. Well, yeah, if you do stage work, you get to sleep in. Yeah, that's right. But you also have that live interaction with the audience and just knowing that, you know, that you can actually pull it off. You see a lot of people that perhaps did a little bit of stage work early in their careers and then they try and then they're predominantly known for TV and they're predominantly known for films. And then they try and go back on the stage and it's an absolute disaster. And I'm thinking of one particular well-known film actor that I was reading starred in an adaption of Stephen King's Misery on Broadway and essentially read his lines of cue cards night after night. And I think to myself, you as an actor, with the amount of money that you've made off your films, granted this person's mostly known for his action films, but I'm like, how could you do that? Like how embarrassing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I Mind you, Marlon Brando was notoriously sloppy <laughs> with learning lines um, <laughs> towards the end. I know. And I think one of the reasons I kind of gave up my career performing is because I just, um, I don't know if anyone out there has seen the movie Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman. Not that that's got anything to do with the era of films we're discussing, but his character in that film stars on a soap opera and essentially he doesn't like any of the lines that he has and just starts making up his own lines. And, uh, and I feel like I want to do that. So I think I better give that <laughs> whole game away. <laughs> it's actually worth watching that film to see the look on the co-actor's face on the soap opera when he starts going off on his own tangent. And they're like, uh, this isn't in the script. <laughs> but the funny thing is, he actually does know the script. He just doesn't like it. But uh, anyway, that wasn't why anyone called. So we'll get back on to Marlene and Dietrich. But she was, um, you know, she performed for the USO, you know, when she became an American citizen. Obviously, she renounced her German citizenship. Although she was buried in Germany, that was her last wish because she died when she was living in France. She was actually 90 or so, and then she was buried back in Germany. But she um, 
Yeah, she worked on the front lines during the war and she received honours from the United States, France, Belgium and Israel just for her participation in the war effort and being such a supportive humanitarian as well. So she really um, led a very varied and interesting life and since her death, it sort of came out that she was uh, bisexual. So she was married once uh, and did have yeah. one child, but I think that guy was, I guess the term would be a beard now. So I don't know what, what his inclination was, but it was kind of a marriage of convenience and they got what they wanted out of it. And she did have male partners and female partners. And you really can tell that about her. It looks like she does have um, a foot in both camps, as they say. <laughs> So we'll jump over just quickly and have a look at these two films that we watched um, from Marlena. So we've got Destry Rides again. So we've got the wonderful James Stewart, who doesn't like James Stewart in this film. And it's a real kind yeah. of rollicking, rollicking sort of film. So basically there's this fictional western town of Bottleneck and um, the sheriff is killed um, when he starts delving into this rigged up poker game. And, and basically Marlena Dietrich's character is involved with all of these people at the saloon. So they appoint the town drunk, this man, as the new sheriff, assuming that he, they can, the, the powers that be, the corrupt powers that be in the town can manipulate him. And um, anyway, uh, they get in a gentleman called Tom Destry Jr., who is uh, James Stewart's character, to come in and make bottleneck, which is which is what the town is called, a lawful and respectable town, although he likes to do it in a more passive and intellectual way. And it's a really fun kind of interesting movie. There's a real light side to it with all the brawls and things happening in the saloon in the town. But then I love the opening credits where it was like the names appearing over a, a widescreen bar fight. Yeah, I just anything to do, anything to do. I think if I had to live in a period of history, like as a woman, I think I, living in the Wild West would have suited me because women fought back then. They sang, they rode horses around. I'm not saying it was all fun and games, but you sort of were able to go against a little bit, you know, compared to a woman living in the cities or living in the cities of Europe or wherever. I think the Wild West would have been a good place for me and. Yeah, I mean, you know, when they got into the, the saloon at night, that's when things started kicking off again. I don't know how they had the strength to do that and then get back up. And, and that was the era of the stagecoach. Um, it was before, you know, rail was around or rail was in its infancy. And it's just a fascinating period of time. So what did you think about this film, Matt? Did you, did you like it? It's a Western film. It's a lot of fun. But there's a serious side to it as well. I liked it very much. Uh, we talked about how fun the opening credits were and the uh, sort of uh, the fact that um, it was sort of tongue in cheek with itself. A lot of the times, you often had a humour brought in with um, the gun toting scenes uh, and the like. It, it does show you that by this point of time, the Western genre was so well known in uh, movie audiences that it's kind of like um, when you got sort of 15 or 10 or so years into the Bond films where you start to incorporate jokes because you're kind of um, uh, taking a taking a light on the genre you've created for yourself. And so the fact that uh, Jimmy Stewart starts doing things like the the fancy marksmanship work uh, to uh, as a way to sort of scare the pants off uh, uh, evildoers um, uh, as a way to uh, show, look, I I may be uh, not much of a tough guy, but I can just shoot you if I need to. 
Yeah, I thought it was the. I mean, look, there's something kind of comforting about uh, westerns, actually, from any different era, even modern westerns, because they have those certain types in the films that the audiences really relate to. There's the good guy, the bad guy, sort of the strong damsel in distress who then redeems herself at the end, sort of thing. And you know, there there are those strong sort of stereotypes. And as much as feminism and all the rest of it, I guess, has made inroads into society. There's still that whole thing. I mean, I myself as a woman, and I'm quite a tomboy and stuff, I'm still very attracted to, uh, you know, the, the Jane Stewart sort of characters in these films. And I actually um, came across, uh, so Destry Rides Again was kind of the second version of the of the book that was made, which takes a lot of artistic license. And then George Marshall, years later, with Audie Murphy in the role of Destry, this film's just called Destry, uh, essentially remade the film with Audie Murphy. And I, I decided to watch that one as well because I thought, oh, well, this looks interesting too. Very, very similar film. I wouldn't say it's a shot-for-shot shot remake, but it's very close to the James Stewart, Marlena Dietrich version. Lots of fun, lots of dancing, wonderful colour, and I really liked Audie Murphy in that film playing Destry as well. And I loved seeing his character on the screen. I loved seeing James Stewart's character of Destry on the screen. So as a woman, I'm very attracted to that. So that's that archetypal sort of, you know, the sheriff's come to town. And even though this is a different, you know, Audie Murphy also played the guy as very sort of iconic and, and not so stressed and taking a different approach to things but being tough when he needed to. Uh, and I really enjoyed his version of Destry as well. So, But Marlena Dietrich in this film was absolutely was absolutely stunning. Her, you know, the production design, her costume design, everything, her singing. I mean, it's just, um, you know, she, I prefer sort of maybe a higher register in the voice, but she's got this really distinctive lower voice and she's playing this character, Frenchie, who's got this accent and, but, you know, she really did a great job in this film. She was very engaging in the role. So if you're looking for yeah. a fun Western, this one's it. And looking at both of these roles where, Focusing on Marlena, uh, she plays a, well, they don't say it literally, but pretty much she plays a, uh, like a, uh, a lady of the night in, in both, uh, films, whether it be the mm-hmm. manager or the actual, uh, worker, as well as doing sort of bar management on the side, because really they're trying to be very, uh, G rated as they can, uh, and comparing, the two ages of her life and her character, although it's chronologically impossible because the films are set about uh, about a hundred years apart, it's it's almost like you've take it, you can take the same uh, lady living on the fringes of society and how she deals with the world through uh, different stages of life, uh, thinking of how she is in touch with evil as well in a in a much more mature form. Yeah, exactly. So there was a little bit of intrigue going on on, on behind the set with James and Marlena. So this was actually the first Western that James Stewart had made. I didn't realise that. And he wouldn't go back to the genre until the 50s. So he did Winchester 73 and then Broken Arrow, which are two very well-known films. So he sort of went away from that and did, you know, he, I mean, James Stewart's, you know, done a, a, a whole range of different types of performances in different films from courtroom dramas, you know, The Guy Next Door, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so now, um, why did yeah, This does remind me a lot of his role in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the kind of similar uh, innocent boy going into the wrong side of town. 
Yeah, definitely. And, um, uh, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, and, and look, you know, at the end of the day, it's still James Stewart. He still brings his own persona to the role. As much as we like to say people are actors, essentially they're playing different versions of themselves more often than not. Now, Marlena Dietrich told um, uh, director Peter Bogdanovich um, that she and James Stewart had had an affair during the shooting of this film and she became pregnant and had an abortion. So, wow, what a what an interesting story that is. But that's, you know, that happened quite a lot back then because all this well, stuff I think was swept under the table. And not just because of the reasons that uh, uh, other women in um, outside of Hollywood uh, d- d- did that, but, um, uh, for example, I think Ava Gardner uh, deliberately uh, aborted a couple of kids she had with Sinatra because uh, she was saying that there were some rather unpleasant some. Um, clauses put in their contract uh, for um, uh, being pregnant during that period. I'm not sure what they were exactly, but I guess it would be effectively like a sort of, um, they'd be treated like you're um, uh, making yourself unavailable for a contracted period and uh, um, we're going to penalise you for that. Uh, Probably that sort of attitude. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's just very interesting because I guess James Stewart has that sort of... um, uh, uh, you know, that sort of boy next door appeal, which is one of the reasons I love him. But, uh, you know, you know, same with Ray Milland, all these people, you know, if you peel back the layers a little bit. And even, hey, hey, come on, his name hasn't been mentioned so far. Even Larry Hagman, his daughter wrote a book after he passed away. And he always came across as, oh, look, that's JR, that's not me, I'm the committed family man. And then in this book, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you're not you're like, not an evil person if you have a relationship with a consenting adult. So yeah, don't get a that's, on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I guess it's sort of the public persona, and I suppose in Larry's case, he was trying to offset what the JR character, who was like, who slept around with all, the whole population of Dallas, and he, oh no, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm the mild mannered, you know, family guy. And in a sense, I guess he was compared to JR, but. You know, then just some of the revelations that his daughter, oh, no, no, Dad had a lot of different people around him. <laughs> so maybe it was a question of um, uh, numbers and perspective. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, his his best friends were like Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda and stuff, and it was the 1970s, so probably, and Dennis Hopper. So less said about that, the better. So, look, Destry Rides, again, is a really fun movie. Check out Destry as well with Audie Murphy. And then there's even the first version of Destry, which is more clo- which was actually made in the early 30s, which is more closely aligned. But Marlena was fantastic in this film, really enjoyed her. So now this film is probably, Matt's going to have a heck of a lot more information about this film than, than I, I will. So let's just jump quickly over to A Touch of Evil. Uh, which I had heard a lot about because I'm a fan of Janet Lee, so I had always wanted to see this film and for whatever reason just had never gotten around to it, but I had often seen all of the playbills for it. So A Touch of Evil is, um, you know, 1958 film noir directed and written by the great Orson Welles, who was such a jack-of-all-trades, he could handle it all. Um, now, Charles Sometimes it was detriment. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, now, Charlton Heston in a very... Um, kind of unusual change of pace is playing, now he is playing a Mexican in this film and he has a very sort of suave uh, look about him, I don't know if that was achieved through lighting or makeup, but he seems very olive in this film and uh, I don't know about his accent though, um, unless he was educated in the US, but (laughs) 
I guess they weren't too worried about that. It was Charlton. It was Charlton Heston. Uh, Certainly, it's the casting choice. You wouldn't get away with these days. However talented no. he was. No, that's that's right. Um, which is, you know, as Matt and I were sort of discussing off the air before, we're like, yeah, it's kind of a shame in the way it should be the best person for the job, but that's that's okay. That's what's going on at the moment. So, Matt, do you want to tell the audience what this what this movie is about? Because I thought it was about something completely different. So, do you want to give the audience a rundown of what the movie was about? Essentially, it's about a detective who interprets the law and is willing to plant clues to uh, fulfill um, his gut, as it were. And he is a, and it's a, one of these age-old stories, a lawman that's got a stellar reputation, but when he shows himself to be falling low of the mark, when he believes his instincts uh, are more important than evidence, um, that's when the trouble starts. Yeah, so it's set on the U.S.-Mexican border, hence the reason Charlton Heston is playing a Mexican character. So there's like a time bomb that's in a vehicle at the start of the film. The start of the film is fantastic. That is my favourite movie scene of all time. Oh, it's brilliant. It's uh, it's absolutely the start of this film. Like, you're sitting there, oh, my gosh, you know, the movement of the camera and then walking in and out of the space and... You know, it's sort of uh, right before this bomb goes off in this car and the music as well. It's got a lot of um, drums and percussion and, yeah, yeah, so... Well, the fact that you coordinate that huge five-minute scene and it's not just stationary, it's in one cut and it does a huge crane shot over a, quite a large area of land. You have the cars and uh, coordinating um, actors moving in and out, um, all to have that uh, explosion occur at the end, uh, because it's that perfect suspense uh, uh, trap that Hitchcock described, where you sort of put a bomb under the car or whatever, and uh, so the audience knows about it, but no one else does, and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, let them be hooked in. And uh, the fact that uh, that was uh, partly uh, motivated to... uh, go against the grind of the film editors paid off by the studios because he had the constant problem Orson Welles of dealing with uh, studio uh, producers who wished to trim down or um, alter his uh, storyline and he'd create um, a long shot, long single take shots like that which were harder to edit. Yeah, so I the, the version that you loaned me to watch had a blurb at the start of it saying this was re-edited closer to the version that he wanted released. And I guess yeah. like most, uh, I guess like most things, um, you know, uh, it had the studio had come in and edited the film differently to how he wanted it. So, um, but that opening tracking shot, um, that long shot, I mean, it's sort of very. Would you say it's a Hitchcockian thing as well, or more unique to Orson Welles? Um, well, they had a lot of um, overlap in their interest and style at times. Uh, definitely the the plot device of, um, like I said before, of um, creating suspense by putting the bomb in the car uh, was uh, uh, one that Hitchcock advocated very strongly. But then, and I think... The fact that and Hitchcock himself also tried to do uh, long single take shots as well, although he didn't um, end up going with it forever. For example, we saw uh, what he did in the film Rope. Uh, yes. 
Yeah, that's but what I, I think it is uh, very much a, a well story, though. Yeah, no, it was absolutely yeah. So essentially, this this car bomb goes off at the end of this opening sequence, and um, Charlton Heston's character um, Vargas, who is a Mexican special prosecutor, is vacationing with his wife in the area at the time, and he gets involved in the in the scenario. And then um, now, is Austin Wells wearing a prosthetic in this film, or? Is his nose different or something, or is it just the weight gain? Uh, I can't remember if he um, had any extra padding or if he just simply gained weight. Uh, <laughs> Which was easy for him to do. So. <laughs> I mean, the limp he would have just put on. Yeah. So he he's playing Quinlan here, and um, Quinlan is like a 30-year police captain who, you know, is in the area, this sort of US-Mexican border area, and he's kind of the main authority in town. So essentially he's... Been playing the dirty cop of the area for years, and it comes back to bite him because Charlton Heston's character wants to actually find out what's going on here. So Janet Lee plays um, Charlton Heston's wife, and she she was amazing in this film. She had a she. I mean, you always think of her in some of her other roles, either with Tony Curtis or Marion in Psycho. But she was had a great presence in this film. And yeah, she could do a lot of things when you didn't kill her in half an hour. Yeah, <laughs> but I wasn't expecting that performance for her. She was actually quite, you know, in your face and, you know, when she's speaking to the men at the start of the film and she's very sort of dominant in her own way. And then she has to play these, you know, some comical scenes at the hotel as well. She interacts with Marlena Dietrich's character a little bit. And then she's also got this quite terrorised scene as well. So um, it's um, yeah, it was just it's definitely interesting for sure. Yeah, well, um, unlike every film noir, it has a ridiculously complex plot, but uh, it gets held together by the strength of those performances. Yeah, definitely. So when um, Charlton Heston signed on to do this film, he just finished promoting the long the long um, marathon work of um, The Ten Commandments, which was, uh, you know, quite a film to be involved with. Um, he always and... seemed to get a play a character that had a tan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though he was, you know, Caucasian, he was sort of a very tan sort of Caucasian, but probably not as tanned as his character was in, in this film. But, you know, other than I always get a bit picky with accents and stuff, it's sort of like when... Um, Sean Connery was playing a Russian in Russian House and he was speaking with a Scottish accent. I just, things like that annoy me, but other people doesn't seem to worry them. So, um, yeah, so essentially, um, I think it was Charlton Heston that actually got Orson Welles, uh, involved in the project because Orson Welles was just signed up to act initially. And then, of course, you know, Orson Welles, he <laughs> came in and directed, wrote it, went, went for the whole thing. So, um, and he, yeah, he when he was into it. a project, he got into a project. Yeah, definitely. So um, they had an original script and then Orson Welles came in and essentially rewrote the script. Um, so I'm just having a look at... So he wanted to deal with um, the thematic elements of racism and to have the narrative shift around to different points of view. So, yeah, I mean, he, he rewrote the script in 10 days. So very talented guy to be able to do that. Um, so I just thought of a great romantic, ro romantic sitcom idea. How to rewrite a script in ten days? <laughs> Actually, I think that, <laughs> that'd be right up your right up your alley because Matt is a writer, so you know that would be right up his alley. 
So it was shot in, oh, in Venice in California. I suppose Venice back then looked a lot different than it does now. And, we're, we're talking um, Venice Beach, not Venice Italy. Yeah, that's right, Venice Beach. <laughs> um, I, I don't think the 80s Venice Beach that I'm familiar with would have gone too well, but back then Venice Beach probably would have been a lot dif- dif- different and suited it. But it was amazing. The whole look of the town, everything that Orson Welles was able to create on screen for this film was, was fantastic. So, so what do we know? Just before we sort of finish up here, what did you think of Marlena Dietrich in this film? Sorry, it's easy to get stuck on Orson Welles, but uh, what did you think of her in this film? Well, it's kind of when I think of, uh, at, at one point you think, I felt like, could we justify this as a Marlena Dietrich film because her appearance was only 10 minutes or so? But then mm-hmm. I thought of what's been described to me as what makes a good short story, and that's effectively that it's like the last chapter of a book that you don't want to write. And I yeah. think that really um, uh, makes her part of it really stand out because the you you really feel that uh, sort of uh, tired chemistry between her and Wells, uh, that where they've had that long history working in a similar community. She's obviously managing some sort of a brothel institute, but also that she's um, uh, dealing with this lawman in the long term, and they've had some sort of relationship. And she doesn't feel the need to be running around all over the place. The camera's quite steady when she's there, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, she sort of glows through it. Yeah, so essentially where, even though this film is considered a classic now, I guess there are different versions of the film floating around. I'm not sure what the initial problem from the studio at the time was. I think they felt that perhaps these long tracking shots, there wasn't enough quickness in the pace of the story. So they essentially wanted to go back in and re-edit the story. Orson Welles was obviously clearly against that. And actually, um, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee did back him up and they refused to go in because they wanted him, they wanted both of them to come into certain reshoots and they wouldn't do it. So I think, I think the, the initial release of the film was a little bit of a hodgepodge of different people being involved in the process, but still the film, what the film has shined through, but the version I saw was the version they recut to be closer to his version of what he wanted. So I'm really not sure what the other version was like. It would be interesting to see what uh, came out in cinemas at the time. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, yeah, we had the original release in the late 50s and then there was a 1976 release. So I think this is when they started trying to put the film back together closer to how Orson Welles had envisaged it. And then we had a 1998 release, so maybe that's the one that I saw, that we saw, and they actually got some universal editors to go in and re-edit the film again, uh, trying to make it closer to Wells' vision. So there's obviously people out there that know a lot more about Orson Wells than I do, so they probably would have a lot more information about that. But um, I guess they're trying to get it back to how he wanted it released in the first place. And that you find that more and more happening. If they can discover the missing footage, people will try to get back together and re-edit it for a special DVD. I mean, there's like a three-hour version of Superman out there. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, you know. um, it, the hardest part is perhaps when um, directors themselves become involved in the recut because they can't let the project go. Yeah, so regarding the 98 release, 
Um, Janet Lee was interviewed at the Cannes Film Festival and she 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 said that she saw it later and she thought that it was wonderful. She thought they did an amazing job and it was very well done. It was what he w- wanted and it made a lot more sense than the chopped up nightmare there was before. It was fine and it was his. If they told me that from the very beginning, none of all of this would have happened. So there was some controversy because perhaps the Well family hadn't actually sanctioned that version either. So um actually that was... Yeah, was that Janet Lee or that was maybe Beatrice Wells, his daughter, that was saying that? So essentially there's different versions of the film of the film out there. So I suppose only if you read the original script and worked on the original film with Orson Wells, you would know what was going on. And I suppose that's Charlton Heston and Janet Lee. So uh yeah. So what's an even more confusing hodgepodge of the film was when they released uh, the project that Wells had been working on for many years before he died and it existed only as a bunch of different uh, rolls of raw and semi-edited footage in his um, possession. And uh, they only just released it like a couple of years ago now on Netflix. And it's really, it's kind of like trying to assemble dinosaur bones from a from a dig. Yeah, Jim, what's the name of that film? Do you know? Uh, it was, um, oh God. Um it's okay. I can I can look it up. So is it Orson Welles' un, unfinished film? Is it? Hang on, let me just quickly. Yes. Uh, uh, awesome. uh, I'm I'm afraid to touch my phone because I'm worried I'll accidentally press the off button like it's happened before. Yeah. No, that's okay. I I think I can get it up here. Just bear with me for a second. Uh, it's all true. Is that the one? Um, that might be the making of documentary. Oh, okay. Orson Welles missing tapes and all this. Because uh, he actually had a lot of unfinished. Was it? It wasn't Don Quixote, was it? Was it the? It, was yeah. It that one or? Well, one of um, you can sort of uh, look at Wells and Hitchcock as kind of polar opposites. Hitchcock was a fairly straight, sober professional. He approached um his work with a studio like uh, a musical manager does, where you sort of go through the acts one after the other. If one isn't working or or whatever logistic problems has to be cancelled it uh, it has to be but wells mm-hmm. when he got it set on a project he goes so far as and this uh, wasn't just when he was a big name even uh, earlier when he was working as part of the federal works project he'd often be getting himself financially involved personally to see it through to his vision and quite often he'd be stopping for sometimes years at a time on a project because he had to uh, gather money to finish it uh, in stages and that led to a bit of a confusion with um producers and production companies who thought that he took ridiculous times to finish projects and it wouldn't uh, it wasn't like that at all when you actually put the actual days of uh, work together but the fact that he had to uh, keep doing fundraising between in between uh takes quite often uh partly because he didn't get I mean, it's a, it's very complicated to work out, but uh, from sort of World War Two onwards, he just had ongoing problems getting into good, steady relationships with uh, with studios. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was that during World War Two, he had a bit of a uh, falling out with one production company, and sort of because the he didn't have the right PR people on his side uh, when he was uh, medically exempted because of. Um, what was it a back problem or something? They uh, 
didn't spin him very well, and so it, but things just got harder and harder for him. Mm, and so okay. he had to be like this sort of lone uh, movie pirate uh, uh, trying to raise for his own projects, which is more common now. But as yes. we, as we know, that's not the easiest thing to keep hold of. No, that's that's yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. So, um, but a touch of evil is uh, an interesting film. It is film noir, so keep that in mind if you're going to watch it, because the the plots can be quite intricate. And if you literally turn your head for a second to finish making your tea or something and you come back, something else has already changed in the plot. So you really have to pay very much attention. And sometimes I even read the plot beforehand. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm, I am keeping a track of what's actually happening here. It's not that you can't follow it, but in this modern day where it's so easy to be distracted by everything as opposed to the good old-fashioned days of sitting in the cinema and only having that as your attention. So that was our Marlena Dietrich double. Beautiful woman, sensational, jack of all trades, but definitely catered to a particular taste. I mean, she was a lot different to some of the other, you know, she wasn't like Marilyn Monroe. She wasn't like anybody else. She was her own, not even Greta Garbo, who she was compared to because they were both European, but um, she was her She seemed to make it her own to be playing people on the fringes of society, even um, her famous suit uh and top hat um, uh, costume. Remember, that was in a time when uh, many places a woman could get arrested for wearing pants. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. Well, that's a great point. And yeah, she definitely did push the envelope, and she did. She led life on her terms, so you can't really fault her for that. So, Matt, did you want to just um, let everyone know our social media before we let them know about the next two movies? Yes, uh, as always, you can see us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at When Movies Were Good at, or at Where Movies in the case of Twitter. I can't remember why we couldn't have a more recognizable Instagram handle, uh, recognizable Twitter handle because of that, but I don't know, some weird thing on Twitter, but you didn't need to know that anyway. Our episodes themselves <laughs> and, 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 are. And a lot of handles are taken anyway on Twitter, so maybe the handle was already taken or it was wrong, yeah. Yeah, poss- possibly. It gets very confusing. But uh, look, the point is is that it's at where movies on Twitter. Everywhere else, it's pretty much at when movies were good. Um, as far as uh, hearing our episodes, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as well. So if the platform that you hear your podcasts on allows for reviews and positive ratings, we greatly appreciate that. It helps us get in front of more people. Definitely. Well, thanks, Matt, for joining me today. We're doing You're welcome. A Clark Gable, <laughs> we're doing a Clark Gable double. We have um, mentioned Clark quite a bit in the past because he's been in a few other films that we've looked at, especially Gone with the Wind. So we're doing um, It Happened One Night with Claudette Colbert. That's Frank Capra, 1934. And we're doing um, a war movie, Run Silent, Run Deep. And that's kind of getting towards the latter stages of his career, 1958. So there's two different time period, uh, both after Gone with the Wind, so, uh, oh no, hang on, Gone with the Wind uh, no, was um, 1939. Uh, well, Gone with the Wind was 1939, and so the first movie, I think, was like about five years before Gone with the Wind. Sorry, yes, but sorry about that, sorry folks, yeah, because Matt was saying that this film was, in terms of Frank Capra, anyway, he thought this was more authentically Clark Gable than what he became known for playing Rent in Gone with the Wind, so apologies on that one. And um, this is what often happens in this podcast, because often by the time we get to focusing on a particular actor, very often, or director, very often their most famous film might have already been covered because it crosses over with a different theme. 
And yeah. uh, this happened with uh, Clark Gable. We uh, had already done Gone with the Wind uh, to commemorate uh, Olivia de Havilland uh, when she passed away. And yeah. But that's fine because we get to um, analyze uh, Clark Gable in uh, some other lesser-known roles. Oh, fantastic. And he's just one of the stalwarts of the classic movie era as well. And, of course, it's always just our opinion, just what we like, what we don't like. The reason we do these period of movies is because all these movies in their own way are good. So until next time, I'm Rachel and... We're watching good movies. And we're watching good movies. (laughs) Sorry about the time delay, folks, and sorry about the phone recording. Anyway, we we hope to record together again in person soon, whenever, blah, 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 the government. We don't want to go into that. Um, But take care, folks, and we'll see you on the next one. Okay, guys, bye.